Good afternoon, brethren. I hope we all can enjoy the beautiful new hall. We'll take a while to adjust to it, and we may have some kinks to work out, of course, as we do in any new situation, but it, it certainly does seem to be a beautiful place. And uh, I had them turn out the spotlight. I guess you could see me better, and the camera could see me better, but it made me unable to see you, and it made a glare in my face. So I hope, uh, hope it's going to work, Glenn, so they could see me on the camera without too much problem. Anyway, that'll, uh, we always have that problem trying to film it. Welcome to all of you, and welcome to all of you new brethren who might be visiting. And I want to say greetings to our brethren around the world. These, uh, of course, services are always filmed, and I can't help but think about the wonderful little school building and hall down in Perth, Australia, about as far away on the earth as you can get, and how warm they were when my wife and I were there a few years ago, and also the hall where the brethren are meeting down in Cape Town, South Africa, and our larger hall in Johannesburg, and the other places around the world. And I hope all of you, brethren, will be able to feel close to headquarters and know that we're trying to serve you. And I want to speak to you in this sermon today because I want to speak about the coming Passover. And we do have quite a number of new people in some of our churches. I don't think we have a lot of new people right here, but some of our churches have a number of new people. And by the time this film is filmed and edited and shipped out, we often take several weeks for it to get there. So I want to speak about this even today. I'm very grateful for the growth we've been having, and Mr. Ames mentioned the growth in the churches around the world, our attendance growth, and certainly, as all of you know, we've been having very exciting prophetic news, and just one thing after the other, sweeping all the way from Tunisia to Egypt to Algeria to Bahrain and over into Jordan and uh, even Lebanon and uh, other places throughout the Middle East, and now even the Iranians are getting upset. And the mullahs there have cracked down on them very vigorously. And some of you may remember seeing uh, the clips recently, the film clips at night in the television, how they literally beat up on shot and bloodied a whole bunch of people there in Bahrain. They really cracked down on and killed a lot of them. It's a very, very terrible situation going on. And yet, my brethren, it is preparing the way for the coming king of the south, these other strong dictators were holding down the Muslims. They were mainly secular leaders that were cooperating with us, and we were kind of helping them, paying for their armaments. But now they're being overthrown, just one after the other, like dominoes. And frankly, that is going to prepare the way for this coming leader, probably in Egypt, who is called in Daniel 11, the king of the south. So it is very interesting to see these prophetic events speed up and just a wave of them starting out right now. And also, as you know, we're having terrible financial problems, and the fat's going to hit the fan next month. They say, in fact, the, the debt, of the national debt, is reaching its peak March the 4th, and they're going to have to decide whether to increase that debt limit or do something, and the Republicans are stalling because they don't want to let the Democrats keep increasing it, keeping increasing it, and yet if the Republicans crack down too hard, too quick, it hurts a whole lot of government services, and they've got themselves in a real box. It's hard for them to know what to do. I understand that. They've let it go on too long. And our government is in trouble. And the Chinese could pull the plug on us any time. We could wake up the next morning, frankly. Many of you know that if you read widely. I'm not making this up. A lot of financial analysts have said this. We could wake up tomorrow morning and find that our dollar is worth half of what it was the previous day. 
These things are happening right now, and they're speeding up. Christ is coming soon, and we have to realize that God is intervening in world events now uh, more than any time in my 61 years in God's church. Oh, yes, we had the Korean War, but that was just a war way over there. We had the Vietnamese War, and that was sad, and lots of people got killed and all that. But now we have all kinds of problems all through the society bringing down the United States, or I should say the American and the British-descended peoples all over the world in a orchestrated worldwide manner such as has never occurred before. And I won't try to list all of them. This is not a sermon on prophecy. But let's realize God is certainly intervening. As I said, I believe a couple of weeks ago, uh, demons are there, and the devil and his demons are perverted intellects, but they are very brilliant. They have brilliant minds. And they know and they see things. And a lot of these demon spirits are indicating something big is going to happen in 2012. I think the preparatory events are underway now for some really big events will happen next year. And we're going to see those events get worse as this year progresses. But by next year, it's going to be very, very difficult, no doubt. And we need to be prepared to the church and be really close to God. But Passover is coming soon, and we all need to be willing to keep the Passover if our heart is right and if we're converted and baptized, of course, and to understand what that means because it is very important. Almighty God has a master plan that He's working out here below. It involves the United States and Britain and our whole national situation. But, of course, the big thing, frankly, doesn't sound as exciting but God is reproducing Himself, and He is bringing us into His everlasting kingdom, and He's working with us. And part of His master plan is involved, of course, very, very heavily in the Passover. Turn with me, if you would, at this point, then, to 1 John, back near the book of Revelation, 1 John, chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading back there. 1 John, chapter 1, in your Bible. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because there's something about it. I love John's writing. He's, he's the deepest writer, perhaps, in the Bible. He's the one Jesus loved, you know, in a special way. And when you read the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you can see why. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we, he's talking about him and the other apostles, Peter and James, Bartholomew, all the others, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, helping him out of the big fishing boats. And he was helping them too, pulling them up the hill and all these young men bumping shoulders together because Jesus wasn't wearing a big black robe and trying to look holy. He was right there with them, working with them, fishing with them, hiking with them, climbing mountains with them. And our hands have handled concerning the word of God the great God sitting billions of miles, perhaps, we don't know, out in outer space, sent a being who was his son, who was the Logos, the spokesman into this earth, who became Jesus of Nazareth and gave his life to die for us. These men got to walk with him, talk with him, eat with him, perhaps joke with him, sleep out under the stars with him on bedrolls at night, and they knew him in a profound way. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That being, that personality, the Logos, the spokesman, 
who emptied himself later to become Jesus of Nazareth, they knew him. They didn't need any, some modern teacher of their day coming on these, these uh, teachers who were very liberals of their day trying to say that there wasn't any real Jesus. It was just a manifestation or an idea or something. He said, we know the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We can have fellowship, not just vaguely know, but actually walk and talk and communicate with even today in our prayers and later hear and see and fellowship with in a very personal way the great God of creation and the God of Jesus Christ who was the Son of God and interact with them throughout eternity. And that's a wonderful opportunity that we have when we think about it. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. God is not watered down here and there. I appreciate Mr. Pyle's very fine sermonette today. You know, there are people in the church who say, well, I'm converted and I believe in God and I know Christ is the head of the church, but you tell them to do something or you correct them and they get their feelings all hurt all of a sudden and suddenly all these wonderful ideas they've had and as though they're very Christian and holy uh, all go out the window. They don't want to take correction. They don't want to change and so on. We will know that God is light and we will walk and talk with that God later on and be made like that God. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He doesn't vary from that. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we've got to practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he in the light, and none of us do that perfectly, of course, but we're to go that direction and we're to grow increasingly in that direction with the help of God's spirit. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we're getting into the Passover theme. Christ's blood cleanses us, a period of cleansing. It didn't happen just on the time Christ was crucified. It keeps on cleansing us. As we repent of our sins every day, he keeps cleaning up us up. He works with us. He works with us. He fashions us. He molds us. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, any of us, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he cleans us up. He forgives us because, of course, the life was in the blood. God tells us back in Leviticus 17, 11, and the life of Christ was in his blood. And when he shed that blood, his life went out. And the wages of sin is death. And Christ paid that penalty, the death penalty, by shedding his blood on the cross to reconcile us for God. And that is an absolutely vital part of the gospel. It's amazing to me that some people somehow get it in their mind that Christ and what he did and his sacrifice is not a vital part of the gospel. But well, that's the very beginning of the gospel. That's the main thing, the main part of the gospel they emphasize, frankly, in the book of Acts. And certainly we know there are various aspects of the gospel. Part of it is the life of Christ and his sacrifice for us. 
And then another part of the course is that he lives his life in us. Another part is that we are finally born again and in the kingdom of God or that we're going to rule over the earth, let's say, during the millennium. Another part is that we will finally be in God's kingdom forever and actually born of God, come right out from God. Those things are all part of the gospel, wonderful parts. But Christ's death and his resurrection is a vital part, a wonderful part. And brethren, we need to understand that. Gospel means good news. What could be better news than to have your sins forgiven for you have been a sinner. Yes, you have, and I have, and all of us have, and realize and recognize that that sin has been forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did. Sometimes we have played that down too much. I heard Mr. Armstrong give a full sermon. I heard him also give a Bible study saying, well, brethren, I've emphasized the other aspects of the kingdom, just the coming government of God and the law of God may be too much because the Protestants, that's all they talk about is Jesus and his blood. So he felt he needed to go to the other exception, that other extreme, you know, to get the balance. But once in a while, he would comment and say, well, we've gone too far over there and we've got to get the right balance and deeply emphasize Christ's death and his sacrifice and how wonderful that is and we can be forgiven through that. So it says, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we've got to realize we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You have, I have, and we need Christ's sacrifice very much, every one of us. As I said in a sermon a few years ago, we, brethren, all of us, if you're really converted, we are the church of the forgiven. We've all had to be forgiven. None of us have been perfect. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, knowing they will, of course, sometimes, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And him, he himself he is the propitiation or the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but for all the world's. And so it says, now by this we know him if we keep his commandments. How do we know God? You say, I would like to know God. Well, you can know God by surrendering to God and letting Christ and the Father live in you through the Holy Spirit. And if you experience that power coming into your life, if you experience Christ living within you, God living within you, then in that way, you come to know God. You see the extra help. You see the change in your life. It's not just a sentimental thing. It helps you change. It helps you grow. It helps you obey God. He says in verse 4, He who says, I know him. A lot of these sentimental preachers say, I just know the Lord. Well, do they? They don't keep his Sabbath, and we can explain it carefully, and they'll argue until they're blue in the face. They'll say, well, we're not to have sexual sin and commit adultery, and yet God, he that, you know, says he that divorces and remarries, except in a very few cases, is committing adultery. But they'll go ahead and let people divorce and remarry for almost any reason. And all kinds of other things they do. As you know, in the Protestant and the Catholic world, so-called Christianity, of course they don't know God. They know about God, but they don't really know God because they don't have Christ living his life in them. So they know about God. But God says clearly, this is God speaking, he who says, I know him, does not keep his commandments, plural, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, 
And brethren, we've got to live by every word of God. And one thing that really hurts our attitudes today sometimes, I'm sure many of you are affected by this, and many of you brethren around the world are, we now have a whole wave of people out there, uh, Christopher Hitchens and uh, all these other agnostic and atheist type writers saying God is not real and, and the Bible is not true and we've got all these different books like the Bible and you can't be sure which one is which and they get people all mixed up by all that so-called scholarship. There's a smart old guy up here at uh, Chapel Hill in the university and he writes these books and one of his uh, books is called God's Problem. Well, I don't think it's God's problem. I think it's his problem. <laughs> he doesn't know God any more than Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck. But he says God's problem. It's his problem. These modern theologians try to reason around that the Bible is not really inspired. I'm so grateful that finally we're living toward the time of the end that one event after the other, after the other, after the other is beginning to occur that we talked about and I have talked about, and Mr. Armstrong talked about before me for the last 50 to 70 years. And they're all coming about, and this book is the one that described them. This book is the one that helped Mr. Armstrong to predict those things before they happened. Not little funny stuff off somewhere. Major events, as I've explained, affecting the British and American peoples, the great sea gates around the world, the fall of the East European nations, or the rise of them, I should say, the fall of the Russians there, and the, 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 the downing of the, of the Berlin Wall, and just one thing after the other. It's big stuff affecting the major nations of the world, and right now this stuff preparing the way for the King of the South is underway. It won't be too many years. It might be 10 or 15 before all these things are wound up, and these men will not have a word to say. They can't argue about, well, we're worried about this translation and this part of the Bible because we can't be sure of anything. They don't want to be sure of anything. They don't want people to believe there is a real God who can tell you what you need to do. They don't like that. People don't like to be told what to do. Their mind, the carnal mind, rebels against that. So we're coming to a time where they're going to have to understand there is a real God. This book is his inspired word. So he says here, but whoever keeps his word, obeys this word, the Bible. Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we are we know that we are in him. We're in union with God. If we feed on this word, if we come to think like God thinks and act like God acts. But uh, he says, he who says he abides in him, if you say you abide in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Did Christ keep the Passover? Yes, he kept the Passover, setting us an example. Did Christ keep the Sabbath? Read Luke 4 and verse 16. It tells you as his manner, as his custom was. He went into the synagogue and it shows you over and over he was keeping the Sabbath. And some of the Protestant ministers try to say, well, when he showed so it was all right to heal on the Sabbath, that was showing you don't have to keep it. Nothing was said about not keeping it. He was showing them how to keep it. He was getting rid of the Jewish do's and don'ts that were attached to the Sabbath. He never remotely hinted that the Sabbath was done away. He simply showed them how to keep the Sabbath. He never said change it to Sunday, the day of the sun. The pagans were observing that day. He continued to keep the Sabbath. So did Peter, James, and John, and Paul. All of them kept the seventh-day Sabbath. 
And most of the honest scholars, even the Protestants and Catholics, they know that. And the early church kept the holy days of God. And God's church is to always do that. So we're to have that same way of life, to walk just as he walked in every way. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which is from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. These things have been in the Bible all the time. The Old Testament has not been away. Christ said you're to live by every word of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 4. And that was the Old Testament. That's the only word they had. There wasn't any other word at that time. And obviously the New Testament magnifies the Old. It tells you how to keep the holy days. It tells you circumcision is of the heart, not in the flesh. It tells you to keep the Passover with broken bread and and wine, not killing a lamb. It tells you how to do these things, but it doesn't do away with them. It does not do away with what God said back there. That's the point, and we have to understand that and really have a deep, profound reverence for the Word of God. And I hope every one of you has approached the Passover can been to feed on this book. Study it. Some of you haven't studied it more than 10 or 15 minutes a day, perhaps for months. Think about it. Be honest with yourself. I'm not going to get a show of hands here, but just think about it in your heart. Do you read the Bible 30 minutes to an hour a day? You try to drink in of it, say, God, talk to me, teach me, teach me your truth, lead me in your way, help me to feed on Christ by drinking in and drinking into this word so I will have his mind, his attitude about everything I think and say and do. This is the thing we've all got to do more. I've got to do more of it. All of us have to do more of it. So I hope you can do that as the Passover approaches. God wants us to do those things. Now, going back here, uh, well, it says here then, uh, he writes an old commandment, and that is the word which you've heard from the beginning. And, of course, the Old Testament is where we find the Passover uh, commanded, first of all. But I'm not going to go there at first. Let's turn to Philippians next, if you would. The book of Philippians, chapter 2. Turn to Philippians, chapter 2, brethren. And it says here in Philippians 2, chapter, uh, verse 4, uh, if I may catch this here correctly, Philippians 2, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this, have your mind on how you can help others the best way possible. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ could have said, well, I've got this great big job up here in heaven and I'm surrounded by the cherubim and the four living creatures and and the thousands of ministers or, or angels up here in glory. I'm not going to give that up to go over here and this little planet Earth and serve people. But he did. He did in order to serve us. So have his mind, who in being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Perhaps you have in your Bible a, a note printed in there. The Greek word here is kenosis. It means emptying. Christ emptied himself of the glory and the power and the majesty which he'd had with God the Father. He came in the form of man. He was able to be killed and bleed and die and be beaten and cursed and kicked around and and terribly beaten in that terrible uh, mauling that he received in in that beating before he died. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he was willing to come to that kind of death. And brethren, he knew about that. He knew what he was going to be facing all through his life. He had to look forward to that, especially at the time he was 12 years old, where it indicated he understood the Bible. His pre-incarnate knowledge began to come back to him, and he was able to actually talk man to man with the great theologians of the Jews there at Jerusalem, and they were astonished at his understanding, at his answers, even at age 12. So he knew what was ahead, but he was willing to do it. He cried out, as you know, and it tells about it, I think, in three of the different Gospels, help me, Father, help me. Help me get out of this. If there's any way that I don't have to drink this cup, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that was always his attitude. What do you really want? He knew the Father knew best, and he had planned a lot of this with the Father, but right when he was right down in the human flesh, knowing they were going to tie him over this board or this stone or whatever it was. Some of them have a stone pillar in these Hollywood movies or other places where they tied a man over, and then they had this lictor, uh, professional whippers, they called it, giving a licking with metal cleats inside the thing, go whap, and then tear the hide right off of a man until he would sometimes bleed to death and die before they could even crucify him. He knew he was going to have to go through that, but he was willing to go through that in order to pay for our physical sins that by his stripes we might be healed. We were so grateful to hear that healing that Mr. Ames read from the report. We're getting more and more of those, by the way. We're not beginning to get as many as we should, but as the end approaches, we're going to get more and more and more. And as these outside events in the world drive us to our knees and we cry out to God perhaps even more fervently and focus more on healing and more faith in God, we will get more healings. We will get more miracles. We, more, we will get more deliverance as the end approaches if we do our part. And I think most of us will. I think most of us here who are adults are converted. It's just that we need to be stirred once in a while and shaken to cry out to God as we really ought to do. So he was willing to go through that for our sake and give himself even to the death of the cross, that kind of death. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, every title, every honor that could be imagined except the honor of God the Father only. Christ has. He's over all the kingdoms. He's over the church to everything. He's the living head of the church. And he is our savior, our living head, our high priest, our coming king. All those things are under him. He's our judge. It's his voice we're going to hear in the resurrection when you read back in John chapter 5. They'll hear the voice of the Son of Man, and they that hear shall live. They won't hear the Father's voice. They'll hear the voice of the Son of Man. Christ is the one who's going to judge because he is the son of man. He's been tried and tested like we have been. He understands he's a merciful and faithful high priest because he was able to go through this human flesh, this human experience, and be tested in the same way we are. So we have to really understand that and have deep feeling for what he was willing to do. All right, let's go back now to Matthew chapter 27, brethren. Matthew chapter 27 and describes some of this here. And of course, it's very, very moving if you really try to picture it in your mind. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 22, and I'm going to uh, 
break in here to a thought so that we don't read the whole thing. He was being tried before Pilate before they took him out to crucify him. And, of course, Pilate knew that for envy Jesus had been delivered to them. And so they, he, he sort of saw through it. He was a sharp guy. And it wasn't really his fault in the sense he allowed it, though. But he was carnal, and he wanted the approbation of people. Most people want the approval of other people, not the approval of God. And so he said to them, verse 22, Then what shall I do with Jesus called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Let him be crucified. The whole crowd began to crucify, crucify, crucify. That kind of thing. They did that kind of thing in that part of the world. And sometimes you can read in the Bible where you see they said they yelled, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, remember, back in the book of Acts for two hours. You say, I can't imagine that. Well, I didn't used to be able to imagine that until I was in Costo Gandolfo, the Pope's summer palace, and I heard all these people yelling and some women crying and shaking for 30 or 45 minutes. Viva Papa! Viva Papa! Until their God appeared on that balcony. I never heard anything like that. Went on and on and on. This kind of thing. They get all stirred up, repeating, repeating, and praying and chanting and crying. Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried again. When Pilate saw he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. That's quite an indictment. He knew Jesus was not a sinner. He knew Jesus was not a criminal, but he just gave in politically because he, if, if a big riot or lots of trouble was raised under his leadership there as a Roman governor, he might be jerked out and brought back home and give a lesser position. So he wanted to maintain his office. So he gave in to them. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. They just yelled that out. Of course, that's a terrible thing, and terrible things have happened to those people ever since. It's, it's really awful when you think about it. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, here was the official official whipping with the, by the Roman lictor, that great cat of nine tails, a man was scourged, a special, terrible, long, cruel type of, of whipping. Then he delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus may have had through the beatings and the cursings and the slappings and the hitting with rods or clubs that describes before that. He may have had one or both eardrums ruptured. Maybe one of his eyes already had a detached retina and he couldn't see clearly. His eyes may have been swollen. His eardrums may have been ruptured. His body was covered with blood. And he was in a daze. They had beaten him up so much. And so they, they took him out, finally at one point had to have another man help his cross, not because he was weak, because he had been beaten so horribly. And so then a little later it says in verse 35, they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled where God had said way back in Psalm, as you know, it's in 22, 12, uh, they divided my garments and for my clothing they cast lots. And then they put up this accusation on that cross, a written thing across the stake there. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So they thought that was blaspheming of him to say that. So then they began to blaspheme him and curse him and mock him and say he saved others. If you're the king of Israel, come on. Come on, smart guy. Come on down from the cross if you're so great. And so God let that happen to his son who had been with him from eternity. 
Now, about the sixth hour, verse 45, brethren, until the ninth hour, the sixth hour, the Romans started counting time at 6 a.m. in the morning. So this would have been high noon. It should have been the brightest, the brightest part of the day there in the Middle East where the sun gets very bright most of the time. From high noon until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. But about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he wasn't play acting, and yet that had been written way back in Psalm 22, I think it was, and that, that, was to, and that came to his heart, and he knew that's what, that, what, that he was in that feeling. He suddenly realized when the world's sins were put on him, he wasn't getting that special help from God anymore. And he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? And then some said he's calling for Elijah. Immediately one took a sponge and tried to get him to drink something and the sour wine. Others said, Let him alone, see if Elijah will come and save him. And then as I've explained in the past, and I hope all of our ministers will do this, and I'd like to encourage all you ministers who read this, don't skip over this. Go and look it up in... Uh, the Adam Clark commentary and other commentaries, and you will see that many ancient manuscripts add right there, that is, right at that point, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. It says, Another took a spear and pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. That happened right there. In other words, some young man, I used to say Italian, Let's not blame the Italians. I love Italian food and Italian music. We don't know who it was. They had a conscript army. It might have been a, one from Britannia, some of our ancestors who were over in England or Ireland back then, or Wales, or some people from Germany, or we don't have any idea. May not have been an Italian. Someone in their conscript army, God put it in his mind that all oh, this Jew over here is, you know, out crying and and he's being beaten or something, and he just turned and said, oh, shut up, and threw that spear in his side. And blood and water came out right then. Christ did not die of a broken heart. Christ died by the shedding of blood. He was the Passover lamb. So right at this point, that happened. And then it says, when he cried out with a loud voice in verse 50, would you cry out if someone grabbed a big spear in your side? He was the sissy. But just quickly, he must go, ah! a spear went clear into his side and blood gushed out at that point, And he yielded up his spirit. He died for you and for me. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. He did that for us. And behold, the veil of the temple. There was a great big thick woven like a big thick Persian carpet type thing. Very hard to tear apart, they said blocking off the Holy of Holies from the outer court in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And right at that point, God supernaturally just ripped that thing right in two. And that must have been very startling to those people, torn in two from the bottom to the top, and the earth quaked. A local earthquake shook the whole area, and the rocks were rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints, not Moses and Abraham, but people who'd recently died who might have been recognized, they were raised at that point, and they came out of their graves after his resurrection. So at any rate, that happened and showing he was God. This was the death of the Creator. The Creator was groaning because the Creator, the creation was groaning because the Creator was being killed. 
kind of interesting when you understand all those aspects of what was going on here. And then you turn, at brethren, to, uh, uh, let's go at this point to chapter 26. Turn to, to chapter 20, if I'm getting this correct now. Turning back to chapter 26, and I'm going to begin read here in verse 17. In verse 17 of chapter 26, we see why he, how this thing came about and what it meant. So we go back to describe the Passover rather than forward. It says in chapter 26, verse 17 of Matthew, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you the Passover? Did Christ set us an example that we should follow in his steps? That's what the Bible says. He kept the Passover. Prepare for you to eat the Passover, they asked him. And he said, he didn't say, no, I don't keep the Passover. Of course he kept it. They knew that. He'd done it before every year. So he said what to do and told them uh, they'd find this man and say to him, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus directed and they prepared the Passover. They had to kill a lamb and slit its throat and roast it, which took a lot of some time, so they'd be ready. Now, when evening came, the Passover was taken just after sunset normally. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, As surely I say to you, one of you shall betray me. And they were sorrowful and found out that it was Judas, of course, by the exchange of this bread that he was going to dip. And verse 26, verse 26 now, and as they were eating, what were they doing? Taking the Passover, they were taking the old Passover, the roast lamb and bitter herbs the Jews had taken. And as they were eating that Old Testament Passover, he then instituted the new Passover, the Christian Passover, but he did not change the date. He never changed the date. The date was always given on the 14th of the first month of God, and the beginning of the 14th, they kept the Passover. And, of course, that was what he was doing here. And when you look, of course, in the Bible, you see Jesus kept it at the beginning of the 14th. And then some of the disciples, when Judas left with the money bag, they thought he was going to be out to prepare for the, the night to be observed on the, on the feast on the next night. And we find that the Jewish people were basically keeping it the next night because they had changed it. They had changed it, and a lot of people today think it ought to be on the 15th because they're following the Jews rather than what Christ did. Christ kept it the night before the Jews kept it. And, of course, that's very clear as you read the Bible. So he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He broke this bread as they had these big bread... Uh, rolls, as you know, at that time, the whole loaf of bread, and they would simply break bread. And I've been in the Middle East a number of times. They still do that. They don't always have sliced bread. Somehow our modern American manufacturers start putting in white flour and all kinds of stuff that took the natural nutrients out of the bread and sliced it. So they, they thought they would fool the ladies and make it think it was easier to do that. Yet it looks it's easier, but the goodness has gone out of it because they made white flour. They made it all sliced and nice. But God had it rich and full of grains and they broke it. It was heavy bread that was really good for you and very nourishing. That's why it talks about the bread of life. 
You don't call wonder bread, bread as modern stuff, the bread of life. You could call it the bread of death, I guess, today, because that's, in fact, what it is. That's why people get cancer and all the other stuff, because they're eating the wrong kinds of food. They're eating foodless foods. But he broke this bread, and I want to explain it for one reason, too. A lot of Catholics are taught, of course, this was God's literal body. Well, Christ didn't. He was with these young men all day. So you could see, unless he had a great, huge explanation, he wouldn't say this is something where this is God's literal body here. He just showed them, this is my body. And here he was, a young man. And he said it in a way they must have known. Obviously, if they had good sense, this was a symbol. He was still with them. It was a symbol of his body. He was handing it to them. Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And every indication is it was red wine. And wine also, the wine would have been red to, because blood is red. So he took the cup of red wine and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. Now, brethren, why did the bread come first? Again, some people don't understand that because Christ's body was beaten and torn by that scourging. Then his blood was shed. The scourging came first. So the bread representing Christ's body is taken first. And then the blood represented by the blind, the, the wine is next. So he gave a cup. Apparently it was a big, they call it the Holy Grail. And some of them think he had some special thing. And he poured out uh, uh, wine into smaller cups out of that. And that may have been the case, but that doesn't make that holy any more than the cross he was crucified on is holy. Now in the Protestant world, I used to sing it myself. Oh, that old rugged cross. How I love that old rugged cross. Well, I come from Missouri, and that's where we used to execute people with the electric chair. So I guess if we were consistent and Christ had died that way, they said, oh, I love that old electric chair. How wonderful. <laughs> you see what I mean? That's crazy. God doesn't say to love the rope someone's hung with or to love the cross they're crucified on. It shows how the human mind, under the influence of Satan the devil, comes up with really crazy stuff. But it was symbolizing his blood, that red wine, drink from it all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant. Remember, covenants were always ratified by the shedding of blood, which is also shed for many for the remission of sins. Christ was the ultimate Passover lamb, and his blood had to be shed. He did not die of stress. He did not die of sorrow. He did not die of a broken heart. He died because the blood was poured out. When that young soldier rammed a spear probably right into his heart, the blood just gushed out, and he was dead pretty quickly at that point. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as you know, we observe the Passover that way. And you newer brethren here or around the world will see us. We have first the bread and then the wine and we all drink of it. And then we sing a hymn before we leave. We have no opening prayer at the Passover service, no closing prayer, simply following Christ's example in that way. We try to follow it as near as we can. I'm sure we don't do everything perfectly, but we try. So that's an important thing. And the Passover is certainly a tremendous part of the master plan of Almighty God, the plan he's working out, recreating himself. 
bringing about sons of God who would live with God and in the family of God and bear God's name forever. So we want to think about that, and I hope all of us can think about God's master plan. Remember, the master plan is God's plan to work out his purpose in mankind. And the first thing in the plan, I might say without reading it all here, although I'll read some of it, Christ had to die to pay for our sins, pictured by the Passover. And that's the first thing. Then you're forgiven your sins. That's the first thing. But the Protestants leave off with that. They don't usually have any more, and they don't even understand that properly because the other things I've shown you about the Passover, they don't do. I think the Methodists, as I remember where I grew up, they kept it, I think, I think it was quarterly on a Sunday morning. Christ kept it once a year at night as the Passover was commanded. Other churches keep it once a week or once a month or whatever. And, of course, uh, the Catholics have mass, they call it, uh, every morning. A good Catholic will often get up early every morning and go to mass. Well, God doesn't say to do that. He says it's a memorial service to be kept once a year on the anniversary of Christ's death. So, again, we're to do what God says. Then the next event in Christian life, you have to grow in grace and in knowledge. You're forgiven by God's, by Christ's shed blood. You're forgiven. You have God's Spirit then. Then with the help of God's Spirit, you grow in grace and in knowledge, which unleavened bread pictures. You come out of sin. You grow to be more like God. The next thing that happens is all of us together become the first fruits. And the church of God is the first fruits of God's plan. We're going to be in the first resurrection when Jesus comes. And that's pictured by Pentecost. And, of course, we are that first fruits. And then the next thing in God's plan in the seventh month of the year is the final events of earth's history, pictured, first of all, by the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, which pictures an alarm of war, of upset conditions. And that's certainly what we're beginning to enter right now. The Feast of Trumpets pictures that. Then next, right after that, after trumpets, once comes what? It comes atonement. So right after trumpets and those things are over, then the world becomes at one with God. Finally, after Christ is here, the world becomes at one with God. Then comes the feast of ingathering or the feast of booths where God then sets his hand to save all of mankind. Pentecost shows the feast of first fruits, the small spring harvest, indicating God is not trying to save the whole world now. As I've said, if God were trying to save the world, he would save the world. His name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's not trying to, but then he will. And the feast of ingathering, the big fall harvest. And then at the very end is the great last great day when he gives every human being who has ever lived a genuine opportunity to be saved. And brethren, I don't want to get off on that and preach on that the rest of the uh, day, but I, every now and then I think about that and things happen in, in our lives or in the world that I'm inspired to think, wow, that's one of the most wonderful, magnificent parts of God's plan that can possibly be imagined. You know, when you think about your relatives who are not saved, you think about if you see the movie Titanic and all these people went down, they're all gone. Are they gone forever? No. God will say, guys, come back. <laughs> He'll, of course, their bodies may have been partly eaten by different fish or whatever, but he is the one who created the spirit in man, and he could put a body right back on those human beings again, and they will be the same person just with a new physical body. 
All the Jews were burned in Auschwitz and Buchenwald and all the all other people too, the French and the Belgians and the Dutch and everybody else. Uh, I remember reading in this wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning, by an absolutely brilliant man who was in some of those concentration camps and was himself a psychoanalyst, a, a brilliant man. But when he first came into Auschwitz, I think it was from another camp, why he saw his friend taken off and or had gone there the previous day or something, and he asked his buddy there in the in the dormitory the uh, the prison. He says, "Where do you think my friend is now?" And apparently they were standing outside at that point. He pointed to a lit wisp of smoke over there. He says, "That's him over there." He'd been burned, obviously. The guy knew what happened. He'd been there for months. That's him going up in the smoke right now. That's where your friend is. What happens to those billions of people? They didn't have a genuine opportunity to know anything. Are they gone forever? No! God is going to give them not a second chance. Some Protestants get all bent out of shape thinking God's giving someone an extra chance. That's not love. What if God did give them an extra chance? I think we could rejoice in that. He's not giving them an extra chance, though. He's giving them a first genuine chance to really understand what it's all about. If God hadn't called me and knocked me down through a whole series of things in my life, I wouldn't be here. I would have just been going right on with my friends. And I think I've told you we used to, coming home from football or basketball practice or something, we'd come by this Seventh-day Adventist church was kind of half the building was above. They had low, low, low windows, and it was kind of a half-basement meeting hall. There were very few Adventists back then. Not many in Joplin, so they didn't have a nice place to meet. But we'd say, well, what is that? And every now and then some new guy would ask, well, that's where these people meet that keep Saturday instead of Sunday. Ha, ha, well, they keep Saturday. Isn't that crazy? We'd make a smart remark and then go on home. We didn't understand, and they didn't understand either, of course. But God uh, helped us to be totally blinded. They happened to have that one truth about the Sabbath. And we weren't trying to be mean. We just didn't get it. And most of you didn't get it either until God called you. In fact, none of you did, of course, until God called you. So we need to have mercy. God has a magnificent plan to save the entire human race. And there will be several thousand and maybe a few million. I don't know. But as Mr. Armstrong used to say in reading the Bible and history of the Bible and things about God, I, I think he was correct that undoubtedly the vast majority of human beings will act on the truth once it's really clear. They're going to be in God's family, but most of them not until the great white throne judgment. Anyway, that's a magnificent part of God's plan. So we want to understand that wonderful uh, plan of God. Now let's go back to Leviticus 23, if you would. And here we find a description of all the holy days. And the reason we turn this here, as you older brethren know, is because it's the only place, as a matter of fact, in the Bible where all seven of the holy days are, in fact, mentioned. All seven are mentioned in one chapter. Yes, they still had animal sacrifices on them. And some of them I could read back in in Exodus chapter 23 and Exodus 34 and elsewhere where the sacrifices are not mentioned. They were put on by this time, but we could have five sermons on the holy days. But anyway, it does give them all in one place. Leviticus 23, verse 1. The ever-living one spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say, The feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, 
commanded assemblies are my feasts. These are not human ideas. These are God's feasts, and he commands us to be there. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work in it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So first he starts out with a weekly Sabbath. Then he comes to the annual holy days. Now, verse 4, these are the feasts of the eternal holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times, or as the King James says, and I think the King James is probably more accurate here, in their seasons, because they were based on the seasons, the harvest seasons of Palestine. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight, not at the end, like the Jews changed it around to be, but at the beginning, is the Lord's Passover. So that is Christ's Passover, not the world's Passover. And on the 15th day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So the Passover pictures the first part of God's plan, Christ's death and our acceptance of his death to pay for our sins, to reconcile us to our God. Then in unleavened bread we come out of sin. And then in verse 15, you're to count seven Sabbaths, count 50 days, and then after the seventh Sabbath, uh, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the, tor- to the eternal. And verse 21, proclaim on the same day it's a holy convocation. Verse 21, it shall be a statute. Brethren, these holy days are statutes forever. They're to be kept forever, the statutes of God throughout your generations. And then in verse 24, he said, In the seventh month, on the first day, shall be a Sabbath of rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, the alarm of war, beginning the final seventh month, the wind-up of human history, the, the time of upset nations and war, finally the greatest war in human history at that point, when just before Christ comes. You shall do no customary work and so on. Then on the tenth day, verse 27, shall be a day of atonement, a holy convocation. You shall afflict your souls. So you fast on that day, picturing the putting away of Satan and man becoming God, the total reconciliation of flesh with its creator, an awesome event. Then uh, he says in verse 31, you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute. Again, these are statutes forever. And God tells us the statutes will be in tomorrow's world. They will be observed. And then you go to uh, verse 34. The 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for the seven uh, days of the, of the, to the eternal. And on the first day, a holy uh, convocation. And then he says later in verse 36, on the eighth day will be a holy convocation. And of course, that is the great white throne judgment. So he spells these out, and that spells out when you understand them and put all the scriptures together, the plan of God. Now, I can't give you every aspect of that today, but I would ask all of you brethren who haven't done so for a while, and I want to ask especially all you new brethren, please call in or write in for our booklet, God's, uh, The Holy Days. It's called The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. Please call the number on the screen up here if you <laughs> like we do here in the program. Anyway, be sure you get that booklet if you don't have it and study it. It spells it out more thoroughly than I can do here in that particular way. Uh, 
turning now to, uh, if you would briefly at this point, brethren, to uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 34. I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me read this to you. Here it's talking in verse 22 about, therefore say to the house of Israel, and as you see, as you keep reading, he's talking about the time of the end, a message to the British descended and American peoples are in captivity and the Jews, he's going to bring them back. He says in verse 24 then, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's going to bring us back to Palestine. When Christ returns as King of Kings, then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. You'll be clean. And verse 30, uh, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a soft heart, a heart that's willing to be taught, a heart that's willing to change and repent. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. So this is the time when God sets his hand to save everybody and cause you to walk in what? This is tomorrow's world after Christ comes back. Are all these Old Testament things done away? No. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Yes, sir, right during the millennium. You will walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's after Christ comes back as king of kings. So these holy days are all among God's statutes and they are to be kept. Now let's go to the New Testament and so how uh, uh, actually the Apostle Paul spelled out what Christ had taught him about keeping the Passover here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians, brother, chapter 11. And he says here in verse uh, 23, for I received from the Lord, that is from the Lord Jesus, who taught Paul personally in visions and dreams, perhaps in Petra, we don't know where it was, that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Get that. What night? The night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. What did the Jews do? They kept their Passover. If you look back in Matthew 27 and these other verses in the in Mark 14, they were keeping their Passover the next night. Christ kept his Passover, the true Christian Passover, the night before the Jews kept their Passover the following night. So the Jews had changed this. He kept the Passover on the night in which he was betrayed. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. His body was to be torn by that terrible scourging by the Roman lictor. Do this as a remembrance of me. It's a memorial service once a year on the anniversary of the death of Christ. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it. Now, some Protestants say, as often as you drink it, that means drink it whenever you want to. It doesn't say that. Christ kept it once a year. The Jews were commanded to keep it once a year. And Christ is the one that actually did that as the God of the Old Testament. He knew when to keep it. He's the one that told him to do it, acting for God the Father. It was an annual memorial service once a year. So as often as you do it. 
as, you know, I might have said it in some of you back when we were Protestants, uh, every Christmas, or, or as often as Christmas comes a time, why I give presents. Well, that doesn't mean keep Christmas whenever you want to. It just says as often Christmas comes, you do this. And that's the way that was obviously worded when you understand it. God allowed the Bible to be written so people could twist it, though. You, you see that. He didn't make everything big Roman 1, 2, 3, and ABC underneath. He made it where men could twist it purposely, a little here and a little there. You have to put it together. But as often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me, and you proclaim the Lord's death, not his birthday. You don't celebrate his birthday. We don't know when his birthday was. Everything indicates Christ was born somewhere in late September or October, not anywhere near Christmas time. But we don't observe that. But you observe his death. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Doesn't say go to the priest and confess your sins in some dark booth to a priest. Let every man examine himself. You're to check up on yourself honestly before God. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that wine. But I would encourage all of you, brethren, to go through a little bit of soul searching as the Passover comes and think, have I really repented? Have I really surrendered to God? Have I really repented to let Christ live his life in me? And do I mean it? Am I going to have faith in this little piece of bread that that symbolized Christ's broken body? Do I believe that God is the healer? We haven't had as many healings as we ought to have. Are we going to give up on that? So you have to ask yourself that. Do I believe that this little red wine symbolizes Christ's shed blood and that that shed blood was given by the Son of God and did pay for my sins? Examine yourself. Begin to study and pray if you need to. Renew your faith. Strengthen your faith. But examine yourselves so that you may eat and drink in faith. For he who drinks and drinks in an unworthy manner with attitude, wrong attitudes or a wrong manner, take getting drunk at the Passover, as the Christians were doing here, these Corinthians, as he explained earlier in this chapter, are taking it lightly. Don't do that. Examine yourself and do it in a right manner. For this reason, he said, many are weak and sick. Some had died. Did people die, a lot of them, in the early church? Yes, they were not all healed, not discerning the Lord's body. They did not have faith, some of them even back then. But he said, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. God sometimes rebukes and chastens us through physical ailment or through circumstances or all kinds of things. And we don't want to judge each one that has an ailment. I'm not pointing the finger to anybody. I have an ailment. And maybe God has let this come on me to teach me lessons. Maybe it's because my father died of a stroke when he was 67, and I've inherited that tendency. I'm already 13 years older. Uh, maybe it's because I took some of this actose because of my diabetes, and a lot of people who take that. My wife has talked about getting on this, uh, whatever it is, uh, root legal case against the manufacturers. But God allowed it. God allows a lot of you to have problems, and each of us needs to take it as a lesson and see whatever we can learn from it. But he has allowed me to keep on living now for two and a half years and is using me, and he's kept me humble by this. Paul had his thorn in the flesh, which never left. God, Paul pleaded with God three times. He said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. 
So you can't judge me and I can't judge you and you can't judge your neighbor, brethren, either around the world. But let's take these things as something that maybe God is trying to teach us a lesson and try with all your heart and all your soul and all your being to learn whatever lesson God wants you to learn from any serious continuing uh, weakness or illness. Uh, some of us get older and we have general things go wrong. That's not always some special plague from God. That's just old age. I've commanded our young people in the office that none of them seem to obey at all. They don't seem to pay any attention. I said, one thing you've got to avoid, avoid old age. And they just keep getting older. <laughs> they, they don't listen to me. So that's disturbing. But anyway, when you get old, things do happen. And I guess most of you know that. Anyway, we do want to examine ourselves in whatever we have at whatever time in life and learn whatever lesson God wants us to learn. So that's the story of the Passover that the Apostle Paul uh, explained how to keep it, the meaning of it, went right down the line. So we want to understand this all about Jesus Christ. Turn now, brethren, and think about how vital uh, Christ's sacrifice is and what a vital part of the gospel. Again, some of our brethren and one of our leading ministers left the church a few years ago, and his main accusation was that we were not preaching the gospel properly because we talk too much about Christ. And I find there's still some that have that attitude, and I hurt for that. I, I just don't understand it. I mean, it's almost incomprehensible. But turn with me now, brethren. Turn with me. First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter 15. Here is the inspired Word of God. Listen to God's Word. Here's the Apostle Paul inspired and put in the Bible. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. What? The gospel. This is about the gospel then. It tells you what the gospel is. Not all about it, but that part of the gospel, which is a very important part. The gospel, which I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved. Are you saved by the prophecies telling about Christ's coming? That's an important part, talking about the kingdom of God to come. That's wonderful, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He says, this is the part of the gospel I preach to you, and he talks about it being the gospel. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, what was he delivering? The gospel, the good news. First of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins. That is a wonderful part of the good news. <laughs> That's not against the gospel. That is a vital part of the gospel. The gospel consists of that. It also consists of the fact that Christ is coming back as king of kings and set up a kingdom. It consists of the fact that we're being prepared to be kings and priests in that kingdom. And it consists of the fact that finally... If we're born of the very family of God, we'll be made spirit and live with God forever and be part of the very God family. All those things are wonderful good news. They're all part of the gospel. But Paul emphasized this part in his early ministry because Christ's coming was going to be 2,000 years later and Christ guided the early apostles to emphasize that part then and we can emphasize the other part now about Christ about to come back but we sure don't want to forget the beginning. We're not going to be there unless we believe in Christ's shed blood and his broken body for us. So I deliver to you that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures said that would happen. 
they said that that's part of the gospel and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was seen uh, by Cephas or Peter and then by others and then 500 brethren at once. Wonderful good news. Christ is risen. He is risen. He is risen, they said. And that is part of the good news of God. That is a vital part of the gospel. Paul said, this is what I preach to you. So, brethren, don't ever get sidetracked and think that is not part of the gospel. That is a wonderful part of the gospel. Turn back now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 at this point. And here is something that is unusual and and, and I think it's good to go back and review this once in a while. Revelation 5, beginning verse 4, it's talked in the first three verses of Revelation 5 about the scroll, you know, uh, that was to be given containing these, uh, uh, he seals the great events of God to come and strong, and, and John wept, verse 4, because no woman was found worthy to open and read the scroll. No one was found worthy to understand these things and reveal it. But, verse 5, one of the elders said, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion is the most powerful animal in a certain way. And the tribe of Judah was first in many ways, as you read the Old Testament. When Moses sent someone to seek out the land, and he sent Judah first. And often Judah is the leader. They have brilliance in their minds. Uh, most of them, and they're a leading tribe. And, of course, the Christ was to come from Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to open it or to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and this glory and power and magnificence, here's the blazing throne of God, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the sea of glass, a hundred million angels up there when you read about it. One of the most magnificent scenes, no doubt the most magnificent in all the universe. Here he is. But then what does he talk about? In the midst of all this glory stood a lamb. God never forgets what Christ did. And he doesn't want us to forget it. Stood a lamb as though it had been slain, covered with blood, you see, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures of the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. These great magnificent spirit beings fall down on their face, crying out and worshiping him. So they fell down, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, these great spirit beings, sang a new song saying, You, Christ, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. We're redeemed to God by the blood of Christ out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I kind of skipped over the bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the prayer of the saints is saying, you have slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe. And you have made us, verse 10, kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So you go up to the throne of God, the magnificent visions that Paul was given of God in heaven, and you see that God himself and the angels of God are there, 
and that God in that kind of magnificent setting brings attention to who? The Lamb of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's have deep feeling, brethren, about what Jesus Christ did for you. Let's have deep feeling about what Jesus Christ did for me and for all of us. And let's prepare for the Passover. Let's humble ourselves. Let's learn to say as Christ did before he gave his life, not my will, but yours be done. And put our faith and trust in the God who gives us life and breath. Realize, brethren, this book is the revelation of the mind of God. And put faith in that. Understand it. Study it. Check up on me. Listen to what I'm saying. These major things have happened. And most of you who've been in the church for a while and you have seen miracles, you've seen healings, but these major prophecies should help convince even carnal people if they're willing to listen. God has to open their mind. Huge things to show there is a real God, a real God intervening in human affairs, a real God working out His purpose here below, a real God who has reconciled us to Him to live with him forever in his kingdom and has done it through the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's remember that as the Passover approaches and each one of us should have a deep, profound love and reverence for Christ and for what God has done through Christ. God is not against that. He wants that. He who does not love the Son does not love the Father. You know all those verses. So let's approach the Passover in that spirit.